does have it all. All of our pre-owned vehicles are Hubler Q certified, which include a 128-point vehicle inspection, a free Carfax vehicle history report, and two warranties. A two-year, 100,000-mile powertrain warranty and a 30-day, 1,000-mile comprehensive warranty. Visit any of our 13 locations today or click drivehubler.com. Dot com. Joining us now on the hotline from Jacksonville, a guy who is no stranger to these parts and talking about the Colts and Jaguars over the course of the years and has seen both sides of it. John Osher joins us from the Jaguars website. And John, we'll begin with this. Is it First Coast? Did I get that wrong? It is First Coast. Yeah, it, it, it's been called many things over the years. Some not great, others great, but it, it's it's uh, First Coast. And uh, for a long time, it was the bold new city of the South. So. Those are some of the nicknames, and in your intro, you said I'm no stranger. Well, it's been 12 years, so I might be a stranger these days, but it's always good to talk to you guys. Now, what's the second coast? Do we know that? Uh, I, I assume the second coast would probably start around Daytona Beach, but they don't call that anything. They just uh, <laughs> Somewhere they in Florida, Park. some guy in Florida somewhere is like, man, I'm sad about Jimmy Buffett, but at least I'm on the second coast, right? <laughs> That's right. That's hey, right. Um, I guess it started in Daytona. So, so John, you've been uh, with the Jags now for 12 years. You've obviously seen you know, a, a franchise like most over the course of 12 years that has its ebbs and flows. Certainly feels like, and this is obviously stating the obvious, but um, – there's a lot of optimism, I would assume, about the Jags, and it looks like a franchise on the rise. But where do things stand right now just in terms of how their offseason's gone and where they are from a health standpoint here getting ready to kick off the year? Yeah, it's been mostly ebbs, and there was one flow in, in 17 when they were good. But then it started to change, obviously, when they got Lawrence and you know Peterson has come in, and now it feels, uh, you know, it, it feels frankly, like, I imagine it felt in 98-ish around Indy with Peyton. And I'm not going to say the Jags are getting ready to go on a 13-year run like that. But the parts have kind of come together. Uh, Right now, going into this season specifically, they feel like this offense is going to be really good. They added Calvin Ridley, who has looked uh, as good as any receiver I've been around since Marvin Harrison. And I'm I'm not saying he's Marvin, but it's the first time that They've had a one, a guy who can really take the top off. He can do everything in routes, and he makes you cover him the way defenses had to cover Marvin Harrison back in the day. Uh, so when you add that to Christian Kirk, to Zay Jones, to Evan Ingram, you know, you're talking about an offense that has an awful lot of potential, and it, uh, it sort of started to flex that late last season. Uh, they're in their second season under Peterson, which, uh, you know, when Peterson was with the Eagles was the year they took off. They won the Super Bowl, and Carson Wentz had a near-MVP season. So that's sort of the storyline around this team. Can this offense, which was top 10 last year, be elite, be a 28-29 point-a-game offense? Uh, that's what they're sort of hanging their hat on as they go into this. John, we talked about going into the offseason and going into training camp that the big early test for the Jaguars would be an internal test and how they would respond while Cam Robinson's out with his suspension. Where's your outlook for this offensive line going into week one now? Yeah, uh, it's good. I mean, there's a little bit of a disconnect between what observers are thinking and how this team feels about its line. Uh Walker Little, who was a second-round pick in 21, I think I'm getting that right, um, he, he has started at left tackle in, in the past. He's, he's the guy they think will be their left tackle going forward. So they're okay with Little starting out left while Cam's on suspension. They feel like maybe they'll move Little to guard for uh, a year after he comes back. And then Little will be the starter next year, if you follow me. That was sort of convoluted. But really, the issue they've had is more with their depth during the preseason. They had some injuries. But uh, they like their line going in. As long as they don't have any more injuries along the depth, uh, they feel like they're better there than people think. And uh, uh, so far with this bunch, they've never proven that wrong on the offensive line. They've always been a little better than people give them credit for up there. John Osher is our guest. He's with Jaguars.com down in Jacksonville. John, let's go back to what you were talking about with Manning and, and 
Trevor Lawrence. And I will give the disclaimer here. I watched Trevor Lawrence literally every snap he took in college because that's the team that I watched from a college standpoint. And I truly felt like Trevor Lawrence was the closest that I had seen. And, And look, a scout guru, I am not. But coming out of college, I thought this guy can make every throw. He can run when he needs to. He's unbelievably smart. But I think that at the NFL level, he had to adjust to the fact that he was no longer throwing to T. Higgins and Justin Ross and you know guys that were a step and a half ahead of their defender. Once that came together for him, do you think, in fact, that we've seen enough body of work to say that he is, in fact, the guy? Or is there still learning curve for him before we can emphatically make that statement? Well, I, I, I think both is kind of true, and I'm not trying to sort of get around the question. He, he's definitely the guy here, uh, and he's going to be the guy. Um, now, is he going to reach that you know, Brady-Manning level? Obviously, you said the disclaimer. I, I can't put anybody there because I saw Peyton do it for so long. Um, but – I think the biggest thing, yes, there was adjustments to not stop throwing to guys who were wide open, but it was such a mess here his rookie year with Urban Meyer with uh, with so much change. Um, in the second half of last season, he threw 15 touchdowns and two interceptions. Uh, he had a bad first half in the playoffs and overcame it uh, with a great uh, first half you know, with a great second half against the Chargers. So he's got that it factor. Um, I hear what you're saying. You can't really put it guy on him until he does it for more than half a season. But if if he's not elite, if he's not one of the top five for the next 10 years, uh, boy, I've got it wrong too. Because I think he's heading there, and I think uh, year two under Doug Peterson is going to be sort of his – his time to solidify what the uh, what the back half of last season was. John, the funny thing, and you know this, John Osher, because you were here. For those that are unfamiliar, as we alluded to at the beginning, you know, you were the writer for the Colts for years, so you saw it up close and personal, probably closer than most. But for those that are unfamiliar with it, the thing that I've always thought was amazing about Manning is you'd be in the locker room like on Wednesday availability and guys would be you know a couple of them be playing Madden somebody be playing music and at their locker and and then Manning comes around the corner and literally you could tell that the locker room would kind of freeze for a moment to find out what his mood was before they proceeded with their activity he was so clearly the alpha right yeah does Lawrence exude that same thing well they're different um you know Manning you know, I, I don't give away the farm here, but not every teammate loved Manning. Agreed. Uh, but they respected him. You know, it's sort of like even if maybe some of the defensive guys uh, resented some of the pubs sometimes or all those little things that get into a locker room, boy, they knew they needed him on that wall. And everything centered around him, and there was never anything, anything but respect and they knew they were going to war with this guy, to use that bad cliche. I don't mean to go there. but uh, So I think that describes Peyton pretty well as a leader. Lawrence, um, I don't know that he has that sort of where you're scared when he walks in, but he's definitely the guy. Uh, and to me, Peyton's was built on a couple of things. You guys were around it. I don't get too far into the weeds. He performed, and then they also knew that his level of preparation his level of preparation was unassailable. Uh, And that's where he really separated himself, where you could not question him because he knew more about what was going on that week than you did if you were the offensive lineman, right? I don't think Lawrence is quite there because I think it took Peyton to be into year 11 or 12 before he had that just implicitly. But he's the guy, and he has all the tools to get to that point, maybe leading a different way, but... And I hope I wasn't like too football 101 there, but I think that's sort of the difference. I think I think Trevor's still sort of getting there on that regard, which is to be expected. He's in his third year. So in terms of you know a locker room itself and the overall temperate of the locker room of the Jacksonville Jaguars, 
if you are Shane Steichen and you are reviewing Jacksonville and you're getting set for this game, the area of the locker room for Jacksonville that is the most thin where you're Shane Steichen and you're saying, this is what we have to attack. If we're going to beat Jacksonville, we are going to do it by doing this. He's telling the Colts locker room what? Probably if you can get them blocked and, and go after the secondary, there's some unknowns there. They're a good run defense team. Uh, they're a good pass rushing team, but they don't get sacks if you follow me. They get pressure, but they had trouble getting home last year. Uh, Tyson Campbell, a cornerback, a, a is a really good player. Uh, the rest of the secondary, I would say, is a little more questionable than the rest. So I think it's like a lot of teams. If you can get them blocked in this league and uh, get guys running open, then then you've got a shot. So that's going to be the the huge question on the Jags is can they get the quarterback down a year after they got good pressure but didn't get him down enough, and that sort of bit him in the end against Kansas City. John, when you look at this being Anthony Richardson's first start in the NFL, where will he be tested the most by Jacksonville defensively? Well, uh, uh the Jaguars outside linebackers, Josh Allen and Trayvon Walker, both top 10 picks. Uh, Allen probably hasn't quite lived up to number seven overall, but he's still probably their best defensive player. Uh, Trayvon Walker, number one overall. Uh, it, they're very athletic, and you would think that they would be able to combat Richardson's mobility. At the same time, to me, Richardson's one of these guys you can combat that ability, that, that mobility all you want. He's big, strong, fast. He's probably going to make a couple off-schedule plays that can keep the Colts in games even when he's confused, which I would think as a rookie quarterback at some point he's going to be confused. So I think that's where the Jaguars are hoping that their athleticism, uh, their very good uh, linebacker core in terms of stopping the run in terms of running and chasing, you would think that that would be an advantage against the Colts because I'm assuming that they're going to depend a lot on uh, Richardson's legs. And then switching to the Jaguars from an offensive standpoint, I know you mentioned how excited they are to have Calvin Ridley with his first start as a Jacksonville Jaguar, but a year ago we talked about the signing of Christian Kirk, and you know a lot of people nationally, I was on this boat for a little while as well, questioned the amount of money they gave to him, but you realized it was a weapon and a valuable target for a quarterback that was hoping to have a bounce-back year. How does Christian Kirk's role or maybe the volume of targets that he saw a year ago change with the, the addition of Ridley? I know they do two different things on the field, but how will their yeah. offense change because of that? I, I, I'm thinking that it's going to help Christian in this sense. Uh, he will be in the, in the slot more. Uh, that's where he's the best. With this offense, probably a little bit like the Colts, uh, uh, there's not really any true – like in the old days, Marvin lined up in one spot and he, knew, and, he, and he never moved off that spot. But Peterson moves the skilled players all around, so they're all around. But primarily, Kirk in the slot is really where he excels, and I think it's going to clarify his role. He had uh, – I think it was 84 for 11.08 and eight touchdowns last year. I'd be surprised if he's not somewhere around that because I think, I think the offense is going to be so much better. Uh, I I would be a little surprised if both Ridley and Kirk uh, don't go over a thousand with close to ten. I I'm bad at predicting numbers, but I think they're both going to have big years. The thing to really watch with this team, that I think a lot of people don't expect, the running game with uh, Travis Etienne and the rookie Tank Bigsby. Uh, the Jaguars believe they're going to be a significantly better running team than they were last year. Now, what the numbers will be, uh, who knows. But they think they're going to be effective running the ball, and if they are, the offense is going to be really good. Okay, last question, John, and I certainly understand John Osher, since you're with Jaguars.com, you know, if you don't want to dive too deep, I get it. But I am fascinated by this, and I know we're going back a little bit historically as opposed to the right now. But when I watched Urban Meyer's teams at Ohio State, I was always so fascinated by how they just didn't make mistakes. They were so well-disciplined. And then, you know, I know that part of why he decided to go into the NFL is because he was intrigued by having Lawrence and what they could do and blossom it together. And that was just an absolute disaster. What the hell happened? Uh, my personal opinion, just not an NFL coach. Uh, it, there's ways you can handle – college players 
that it's very tough to handle grown men. Um, so the motivation that worked, and I, I was not around. I covered Florida at one point. It was not when Urban Meyer was there. But my understanding from talking to different people who were around Urban, uh, when your primary motivation is playing time and you know uh, motivating the way you motivate college kids is different than what you do in the NFL. And the NFL, as you guys know, if, if you've been around a college program and been around an NFL program, they're two different games. And I think he's a great college coach, and, and the NFL just wasn't a match. And probably it probably wasn't the right time in his life to be an NFL head coach, be making that transition with so much success. So uh, that's sort of it in a nutshell. It was a weird year that I could probably go on about for hours, but that's probably it in a nutshell. <laughs> I, think, I think you should do an hours-long podcast. Weird year from the First Coast with John Osher. John, appreciate it as always. Um, safe travels up here, and we look forward to talking to you over the course of the season as well. Guys, I always enjoy it. All right, John Osher, again, jaguars.com on the hotline. Now, we have a list of questions that we are to ask Rob Blackman. Jimmy, did you did you take notes? Clearly not. But I was never good at that okay. in general. Well, I've, I've got my whole list here. Did we get a hold of Rob, Eddie? Rob Blackman, of course, of the Purdue Sports Radio Network and the radio play-by-play voice of the Purdue basketball program joining us now after the Boilermakers' disappointing 39-35 loss to Fresno State. Again, I'm going to go back to, and I'm not trying to be an apologist here, I don't know that it's as egregious as Pete. You know, Fresno State's a pretty darn good program, but I don't know how good they were thought to be this year. Three-and-a-half-point game going in means that essentially it was a toss-up game. Uh, Rob, we'll begin with this. From a from the negatives standpoint, the area that Purdue, where they kind of left that one out there, would be what? Third down conversions or lack thereof offensively and short yardage offense or lack thereof. And by the way, Jake, I know you've forgotten this, but you and I do share a birthday, so happy belated birthday to you and me on Sunday, partner. I, you know what? I had forgotten that your birthday September 3rd. Happy birthday. What'd you do to celebrate? Anything? Uh, just kind of sat around and felt sorry for myself because Purdue lost a football game the day before. <laughs> and you know what, Rob? The reality is this, and I'm not trying to spill the beans on your age, but I know that you're in the same bracket as I. Um, you have already had your 50th, correct? Correct. I'm 53 now. Yeah. Yep. So, one, so once you turn 50, uh, you might get a little blip at 60 and then like 75 people care. And outside of that, no one cares, right? <laughs> Isn't that the truth? Even my own family. <laughs> <laughs> really? It's like, you know, you're 51. Yeah, great. You know, that was a year ago. We had that party. That was fun. You know, like, yeah, okay. Um, exactly. Did, did Purdue get too conservative offensive? And by the way, happy birthday, Rob. Um, did, did Purdue get too offensively conservative? Uh, I don't think too conservative. I do think maybe a little bit too stubborn, <laughs> especially in, in short yardage situations, uh, not only late in the game, but all, quite frankly, I thought Purdue got a little bit more little bit more liberal offensively late in the game. Um, but just the inability to, to push the pile and, and to move the line of scrimmage was, was really disappointing. And that's, you know, that's not just me. That's Coach Ryan Walters talked about that in his press conference yesterday at and, and he gave the specific number. I don't remember the number, but it was, you know, six or eight line, plays from the line of scrimmage where it was two yards or less to gain, and Purdue didn't get didn't get the two yards ever in any of those situations. So, uh, the, the, to me, it wasn't as much conservative play calling as it was uh, just, you know. And look, I understand this is a young staff, a lot of young coaches, and, and stubbornness probably will be a, a part of the learning curve. Uh, but uh, when it became painfully obvious that unfortunately you were not going to be able to win the win the battle of the line of scrimmage offensively, uh, maybe maybe should have thought of something else, uh, at least a little bit more creative uh, in those situations on offense. But um, look, all in all, I think there are a lot of things to like about that game. I thought Hudson Card was as good as advertised. I thought the wide receivers were better than advertised, and. Um, and defensively, I thought the front seven was really good. Now, the back half wasn't great. Again, Ryan Walters talked about that. The, he, he really liked what he saw from the front seven, especially pressuring the quarterback. The problem was on the back end, covering guys or covering them, as he said, long enough. You're not, not covering them long enough. Um, so 
I guess probably what we all expected in the in the first game: some good, some bad, some ugly, and and, and so it is. Rob, you kind of walked into my question about Hudson Card: seventeen of thirty, two fifty-four, two touchdowns, no picks, and his. Debut with Purdue, they put up 35 in the loss. I know that traditionally and the mindset with Ryan Walters is obviously getting things cleaned up on the defensive end, but do you expect this level of explosiveness on offense for them this year? You know, considering the quarterback and considering the guy who's calling the plays and Graham Harrell, I don't think it's that far out of the realm of possibility that, yeah, this could be kind of what you see on a game-in, game-out basis. Now, when you get in the Big Ten, obviously those defenses get a little bit more, a little bit more <laughs> stiff, if you will, uh, a little bit more challenging. But I do really like the the group that Purdue has offensively from a skill position set. Again, I think they're still trying to find some answers up front. Now, to be fair to that offensive line, they're also without Gus Hartwig and Josh Kaltenberger, who are your top two centers. So Purdue's playing with their third string center. Uh, but from a skill position standpoint, yeah, I, I think there's plenty of explosiveness. I, I think you even saw that with a Tyrone Tracy kickoff return for a touchdown. You know, he's a guy that he, he's quite frankly the second or maybe third running back on your roster, yet, you know, he has the ability to, to, to take a kickoff 96 or whatever it was, 98 yards to the house. So, uh, yeah, I, I think skill position wise, um, Purdue fans should expect kind of what they saw uh, on Saturday. Uh, just the, the great irony, and you guys know this. Heck, you might have already talked about it. The great irony is you, you bring in a head coach who was uh, the toast of the of the country defensively last year. I mean, everyone wanted uh, Ryan Walters calling their defense because of how dominating Illinois was last year. I think they led the nation in in points allowed, and I think they led the nation in yards allowed. I mean, the two most important statistics. Uh, so, so to think that you, that you gave up thirty nine points, uh, you know, with that, I guess I'd put it this way. If I would have told you guys or any Purdue fan before the game started, uh, look, you're going to score 35 points, you're not going to have a turnover, and and you're going to get a special teams touchdown, you'd have said, oh well, Purdue's winning that game, you know, 35 to seven or 35 to 10, uh, something like that. But that that wasn't the case. So uh, the great irony that the, the guy who was the toast of the country as a defensive coordinator last year, uh, Purdue just wasn't very good uh, for him as a head coach uh, on defense Saturday. So. Hopefully Purdue can can clean that part of their uh, game up, but uh, uh, but yeah, as I said, kind of what we what what did we expect in the first game? I don't know. I didn't know what to expect, and so quite frankly, I wasn't really surprised at anything that I saw on Saturday because I didn't know what to think going in. Rob, somebody told me to ask you this. Pretty good question though. Graham Harrell being on the sidelines as an O coordinator, typically we see guys up in the box. Uh, when I say the box, I mean up in the press box, getting a, a full view of the field itself and then radioing down plays. Uh, it, that seems unusual to me. Obviously, new coaching staff, but um, A, how atypical is that? And B, is that going to be the plan game in, game out? Well, I do think that's the plan, and you're right. That's that is not uh, that's not typical, but um, I'm glad that question was brought up because that I think it was last week that question was actually brought up to Coach Walters in one of his press conferences and he said they actually sat down as a staff and talked through all of that stuff and you know and talked about where would you prefer to be uh field or press box with each of the coaches and it was unanimous that Graham Harrell wanted to be on the field so you know that that obviously was something discussed and that that they felt like that's where they want him to be I don't see that changing um again especially when you score 35 points in your first game that, that means something's probably working out okay but yeah, that that was uh, that's a good question because Coach was asked that very question last week, and that, and that was his response to what I just gave you there. So uh, you're right; it's different. I, I, I I'm trying to think of the last time Purdue had the offense coordinator down on the field. Uh, I don't really know. Now, granted, Jeff Brom did a lot of offensive coordinating behind the scenes when he was at Purdue. Um, but yeah, that, you're right; that, that's that's not that's not typical. Did you feel bad that I didn't call to wish you a happy birthday, Rob? <laughs> <laughs> the uh, irony i saw your tweet with uh four or five different pictures of the number 51 yeah yeah and i i immediately knew exactly what that was for obviously again because you and i share a birthday and i know you're two years younger than i so <laughs> so but no I, I i did appreciate that tweet i thought that was very creative on your end but i was not disappointed that you did not reach out to me no and to be fair i didn't reach out to you either so that i mean i would be just as guilty <laughs> Well, I I cursed you for like forty eight hours to be honest with you. But uh, who's your who's your favorite number fifty three of all time? Oh God, fifty three. 
Uh, fifty-three. I don't. Uh, I, uh, I don't have an answer. Couldn't give you a fifty-three. I'm, lo- I'm looking at it right here. Ray Donaldson, Bill Romanowski. You don't want to go with Bill Romanowski, right? Nope. Uh, I do remember Ray playing for the Colts, but I if, but I could have never told you his number if you'd asked me his number. So, yeah, no no fifty threes for me. I wasn't basketball wise? Wasn't Kent Benson fifty three in the pros? But you're a Purdue guy, so you can't say that. But then he was sitting behind the the, the basket for a while because he was mad at Indiana. Hugh Douglas. It's not bad. There just aren't very many famous 53s in the world of sport, are there? See, here, here's, can... here's the best way of saying it, Rob. Um, I turned a lame year at 51, but the only thing more lame is 53. So I, at least I got <laughs> Hugh Green. <laughs> exactly. Hugh Green, I mean. Um, hey, Rob, Virginia Tech is up next for Purdue. I, look, by name and certainly by stature, big-time program, but they also – um, I think kind of trying to get things going there. They've been down a little bit. What do we know about Vatek at this point? Yeah, about all I can tell you is they beat Old Dominion in their season opener Saturday, and that's about all I know. And they fact they'll play Inter Sandman uh, when they take the field because, of course, they're famous for that. But I don't know. I've done. Uh, hey, look, it was my birthday weekend. I wasn't going to do any extra work, man. I, I didn't. I didn't go above <laughs> and beyond. I haven't even opened up a single nugget on virginia tech yet so i'm i'm still celebrating my birthday daryl dawkins uh, daryl dawkins was 53 that's pretty cool i'd oh, go with that's that a good one, yeah. Yeah, yeah that's a good one yeah i'd go with that chocolate thunder man he was awesome 53 sucks dude <laughs> I, mean, just, I mean there, there aren't any good sports numbers for 53 it's kind of like you said it's that in between age when no one really cares correct so, yeah, no you're right sucks now, man, getting older, making me both both of you making me feel very excited about the prospect of that. How about thing. this? How about this, <laughs> Rob? You're 53. Daryl Dawkins was number 53. Daryl Dawkins, in our respective, obviously same time frame childhoods, there were three players that were always mentioned as at the time being total anomalies of going straight from high school to the pros collegiately. Daryl Dawkins is one. Who are the other two? Uh, Moses Malone. That is correct. And uh, you're going to stump me on the third. Well, that's probably be really, really obvious, and I'll be mad at myself for not knowing it. No. As a matter of fact, I think this guy is probably only remembered for being like the anomaly statistic with the other two, because I think this guy was technically the first. Bill Willoughby. Do you remember that name at all? Oh, I would have no. I would have never gotten he, that. He, I think it was the same year as Malone when he entered, and so the big thing was. So he was basically he was the Ryan Leaf to Moses Malone's Peyton Manning. Does that make sense? Okay. Yeah. He that 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 name Bill Willoughby sounds like someone I should be listening to on Yacht Yacht Rock Radio. <laughs> that. that does not sound like he a does a act. he does a mean Christopher Cross cover. I got to tell you that that Bill. Yeah. Bill exactly. Exactly. Bill, Bill Willoughby. Yeah. He's. Uh, I don't, I'm not sure if he's still sailing with us. As a matter of fact, uh, Daryl Dawkins is not. Yep. Yeah, Bill Willoughby is. Anything you want to add there, Jimmy? Yeah, Rob, have you been inspired at all next year for 54 to put together a collage of your favorite 54s? Maybe dive a little deeper into that? No, I've, uh, <laughs> I'm have i struggling so much right now with 53. I don't, I'm too scared to even look ahead to September 3rd of next year. Hell, you year. got 363 <laughs> days to figure it out, Rob. You can do a Google search between <laughs> now and then. <laughs> what do you mean? I'll, I'll be ready next year when we have this. Exactly, yes. Hey, Rob, uh, to, to go back to... Uh, Saturday, though, and just whenever you have a new coach, you know, there are always question marks, right? So I guess my my question for you would be this. What was the thing that was making you most nervous or that you were the most curious about that was settled for you on Saturday? Was there an area that you had the biggest question mark for? And then by as the game went on, you thought, okay, I can exhale. That is one area of this football program that I feel pretty good about. Yeah, good question. Uh, because the one area of concern I had uh, for Ryan Walters, uh, the X's and O's part, I have no concern about at all. I think he's proven himself as a coordinator, certainly defensively. But the fact that he's only 37 years old and the fact that he has put together a very young staff whom we're all working together for the first time, I was really nervous about the, I don't even know if the right word is cohesiveness, um, but how things were going to work on the sidelines. Um, 
from a coaching staff standpoint? Was it going to be just complete chaos because everyone's young and this is really their first crack at this in a lot of ways? Uh, or would it be kind of neat and tidy and organized and, and all of them, you know, actually, at least from my vantage point, now granted I'm seeing it from the press box, but did it, did it look like they all had a general idea what the heck they were doing? And I was able to exhale about that part. I did really feel like Ryan Walters was in charge. You knew he was the boss. There was no, um, I don't even know what the right word is here, but I'll say craziness going on with sidelines with coaches losing their minds or not getting the substitutions right and that kind of stuff. I think Purdue had, had one, had to take one timeout, and it was in the second half where they didn't get the substitution patterns right, and I think they had 12 on the field. That's prob- that's actually really good for a first-time staff with a first-time head coach. Um, that that had me the most concerned. And now looking back at it, again, they look like a seasoned group of coaches who actually knew what the heck they were doing. So uh, that put my mind at ease on that. Again, X's and O's wise, I actually think Purdue has a really, really talented staff who really actually does know what the heck's going on. Um, but first time working together, like I said, how, you know, how's that all going to work? Uh, that 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 was one of those things I was able to exhale and say, yep, okay, this looks fine. This group's going to be okay. Rob Blackman of the Peru Radio Network. Nice enough to join us here on Query and Company. Rob, you already mentioned Hudson Carr, but eight newcomers featured in the season opener, eight started, in fact, in the season opener for each side of the ball. What would you make of the newcomers? Uh, I, I, I think the defensive secondary um, outside of Thieneman, uh, you know, Thieneman, I, you guys may have seen this just a couple hours ago, named the Big Ten Freshman of the Week. Um, outside of Thieneman, uh, probably struggled a little bit more than I thought. Now, those corners, keep in mind, Purdue fans, those are all brand-new guys. Purdue, Purdue doesn't have a single guy in that in that cornerback room that was on the roster last year. They're all either freshmen or transfers. So there probably is going to be a learning curve there. Um, but I, I didn't think we covered as well in the back end as we could have or should have, and Ryan Walters echoed that yesterday, as I said, in his press conference. Um, so that was probably my biggest concern on the newcomers. You know, outside of that, I mean, look, you, you kind of – we already we talked about Hudson Card. He, like I said, I the, the nice thing I thought for him is you know he did transfer in at semester last year, so he had that entire spring semester plus obviously all of summer and now fall camp to to acclimate himself to the new system. I I, I think if I had any criticisms of him, I felt like maybe he should have run the ball a couple more times where he, where he tucked it and stepped out of pressure and then decided to throw at the last second instead of just uh, run the football. Uh, outside of that, I, I thought all of his reads were correct. That most of his throws were on time and on target. Uh, I had very little, uh, very little criticism of the job he did. So, but I know you asked specifically about new new faces. Uh, that the secondary probably concerned me the most. Again, I'm not jumping off the tallest building in West Lafayette just yet because I, I do think when they're all brand new faces, it's going to take some time. So, but that, that's that's what I would probably that's what I'd say to secondary. What is the tallest building in West Lafayette? You know, it's funny, Jake. As soon as I said that, my mind started racing. <laughs> thinking, what would be the? Tallest it, would, it wouldn't building? be the courthouse, right? That's in Lafayette, right? That's in that. Technically, that's in Lafayette. And now that I think about it, what I don't even know. Mackey? Maybe would it be Mackey? Well, I was going to say the top of Ross Age Stadium, maybe. That, yeah. Uh, so I, I don't know, but luckily it's not tall enough that even if you jump from it, there's a chance you probably survive. So it's not all that. <laughs> don't test actually. it. By the way, what's your major league <laughs> baseball team? You're a Reds guy, right? Oh no no no! I've uh, the Pittsburgh Pirates have always Bingo. been okay. my team. There we go, Rob. Yeah. They were, like, again showing my age in 1979 when they won, won the World Series. I was nine years old, so I thought that was a big deal. But yeah, I've always rooted for the Pirates. There you go, Goose Gossage, 54 for the Pittsburgh Pirates. No. So okay. you got that. So you are looking for your Goose Gossage birthday. Joe Thatcher of Kokomo wore fifty four for the Padres, but Goose Gossage. There you go. Thank you for that tidbit. I'll rest easy tonight. <laughs> That's right, uh, Rob. Appreciate the time as always, man, and happy birthday again. All right, happy birthday, Jake. See you guys. Appreciate it. That's you, Rob. Rob Blackman. You know, I've known Jimmy, Mike Chapel, pretty long time. Probably, I mean, I guess I've known Chap for 20 years, I'm going to guess, um, and had, you know, pretty long conversations with him over the course of those 20 years. And yet there is a question I'm about to ask him that I've never actually asked him ever once about Mike Chapel. 
I don't know that I've actually heard this question asked to Mike Chappell. Okay, you ready? Mike Chappell from CBS 4 and Fox 59 joins us right now on the hotline. Uh, Mike Chappell, I don't think I've ever asked you this. You have covered the Colts since the time of their arrival in 1984. You are the dean, as we talk about, of Colts coverage. So the question that I have is this. What was your sports writing role before the Colts loaded up the Mayflower trucks? How dare you ask that? See, it was such a good question, I stumped him with it, right? Out of the gate, throwing fastballs. Do you know the answer to that? No. I've only known Mike Chappell as a Colts beat writer. As have I. But his time as a sports writer in Indianapolis does precede when the Colts were here. Yes. Now, let's just go ahead and place wagers. I'm going to say he was the uh, a general college athletics assignment reporter. What's your guess? I'll say... I'll agree with you on that one. Otherwise, I would say like heavy high school beat. I don't okay. Know. So Mike Chappell, um, I don't know if you heard it before you dropped off, but what I was asking you was, before the Colts loaded up the Mayflower trucks and came to Indianapolis, your journalistic responsibility at the Indianapolis Star was what? That was the first thing. Uh, they, I went to the Star in 84, which coincided with them. So I sort of, I was still still living up in Anderson. I'd been sports editor for 10 years. And I was getting ready to move down here. So I sort of backed up John Banch. But my early years uh, at the Star were small colleges. Some high schools maybe uh, basketball, but small colleges, you know, DePaul, Wabash, Indiana State, Ball State. So that's kind of where I really kind of got busy with small colleges. And so at Anderson, I'm assuming, uh, along with being the sports editor, you were probably pretty heavily – uh, you know, Troy Lewis and Winston Morgan and Stu Robinson and that group, right? There, I, I always say I was in Anderson during the golden years. I mean, they had 9,000 people on Friday night at the Wigwam and whatever Highland and Madison Heights hold it, 4,000, whatever it was. And there were years, I swear to God, I'm not just hyperbole, there were years that the Madison County All-Stars could have beaten the Indiana All-Stars. They were that good. Winston, Stu, uh, Brad Duncan, Rick Lance, uh, Mark Barnheiser at LaPel. They were – Ray Talbert, well, still my all-time favorite high school player, Ray Talbert. They had a game when he was a senior, and Elwood was pretty good. And they kind of trash-talking him. They said, hey, he's no big deal. He blocked 18 shots. <laughs> so he, he showed him who the man was, but uh, – and then my first year down here, I covered the, the tech sectional, I think it was. And they may have had, I don't know, 75 people in the stands. So it was quite a culture shock from uh, my years at Anderson. Um, Mike Chappell joins us, by the way, obviously, here on the guest line. All right, Mike, let's begin with this uh, Colt standpoint. Uh, Shaquille Leonard. You know, it's interesting. He went into the concussion protocol. I never, ever, Mike, um, it's kind of been a goal of mine, I guess, just professionally speaking. When a player is dealing with an injury that is of the the neurological sort, I, I, you know, I don't question it. I mean, I get it. You've got to be very, very careful. Having right. said that, uh, the level of concern at this point for an injury that a couple of weeks ago we probably went, oh, he's in concussion protocol, he's out four or five days, whatever. What's the level of concern now that this is going to be something that's going to be much longer term than we anticipated? None. Well, none until he gets another one. <laughs> so, no, I think he, he he probably is in the final phase of – well, he is, which means probably one day of contact or, or whatever they deem contact. No, I've got I've got zero – no, I've got five percent concern that that that's a problem. I my, my concern will be is he all the way back from the back issues. Which and that's that's the other question is from that standpoint, um, you know, with the back, I, I thought actually he was having a pretty good camp, but you see Correct. it much more closely than I. No, that, uh, everything that with our dumb eyes sometimes that we need to see, we saw, you know. He, he seemed to, to to mark all the boxes, uh, and, and the only one that we haven't seen is is play full time. You know, as, as much as he can play. Now I, they're not going to throw him out there for sixty plays, I don't think. But I think he's done everything that he can do 
with the with the settings that he's had to show people that he's ready. And and we'll find out we'll find out Sunday. I, I think he looks ready. Uh, I don't know that anybody thought he looked ready last year when he came back against Tennessee because it was obviously wasn't. But I, I don't get that impression at all. They they really hurried him back last year. They really, really didn't hurry him back this time. Hopefully the back holds up because this is a special talent. He just is. He He wears my butt out with finding things to motivate him. You guys doubt him. Okay, fine. Robert Mathis did the same thing. But this guy is a special talent, and Gus Bradley has never had him in this defense. You know, those games, those three games last year, that's not <laughs> – that wasn't Shaquille Leonard. So I'm looking forward to him being in this defense and seeing what he can do because this defense needs playmakers because it doesn't have very many. Mike, there were reports that former Jaguars running back James Robinson was worked out on Monday. If the team is still working out running backs, is that more, in your mind, a commentary on where things might be at with Zach Moss slash trying to figure things out with this running back room? Or is it more just trying to add depth to a position that is going to be done by committee per Steichen, at least until the Jonathan Taylor situation is figured out? Yeah, yeah, both. I mean, both. You're always looking. I mean... You, you, you can you can find a free agent out there that's at least as good as, as Zach Moss, and I and I don't mean to trample on Zach Moss. He, he he played pretty well in December last year when they really needed him. He averaged I don't know what it was eighty eighty five yards a game and had one hundred and fourteen in the in the last game I think it was. But but you're always looking to get better, you know, Deion Jackson. He 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 he's an okay compliment type of guy, but then you got Evan Hall and a couple guys on the practice squad. But this is not the kind of group you want to go into and say, "Yeah, for 16 games, this will work." You know, I'm not totally writing off Kareem Hunt. I'm just not. I was told the other day that that's not going to happen or whatever the, the phrase was, but I'm not writing that off. Uh, because you need, you need you need more, and, and if, if I'm the team, I'm looking to somebody for 17 games. Because who knows what's going to happen with, with JT? You just don't. At some point, he's got to come off of his 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 stance and practice and play, or or, or it's really going to get really going to get nasty. But this is, this is just doing their due diligence. And James Robinson's had some had a couple of good years, at least one good year in Jacksonville. But at the same time, I always come back to the same thing. These guys are out there for a reason. Teams don't cut players that they believe can help them. And, and like offensive linemen, I wish the Colts would have got a better offensive lineman on the waiver wire. Well, they weren't there. So, you know, you, you take what you get. And the problem when you're adjusting your roster now is you're doing it with teams, you know, discards. And, again, it's seldom that you get a really, really proven quality player out there now because there's always a reason. Mike, let me ask you this because I don't know the answer to this. I don't know that any of us definitively know the answer, but if 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 there's one that would, it would be you. Do you believe that the Colts, meaning Chris Ballard or Jim Mercer, either one, in the back of their mind, truly stu, uh, truly still do want to sign Jonathan Taylor beyond this year? Right now, no, no. But I, I do believe they, they, in their heart, they're saying, first of all, show us you're not hurt, because Taylor's telling everybody he's hurt. That's a, that's a that's a not exactly a strong leverage from a player to say, yeah, I want top money, but you know, I'm hurt. My ankle hurts. But I, I think what I think ideally for the team, not Taylor, they're saying, hey, come in and play the last 13 games, ball out, show people, show us, and show people that you're. The 2021 Taylor, although last year wasn't totally on him. I mean, the team was not very good. But and then they'll entertain that thought. But what they'll entertain is the franchise tag, <laughs> and that's what Taylor does not want. So if I had to plot in the back of the Colts' minds what they want, come out this year, the rest of the season after pup and play, and then oh by the way we'll tran- we'll we'll franchise you, and oh by the way we can do that again. 
which is exactly what Taylor does not want. Well, because it, to me, Mike, it seems counterproductive to, and I'm not saying that there, that that all things are motivated by this one thing, but when you're when you make the case that the running back position is one, as I have said, that is the most fungible position in football in 2023. And if you're Jonathan Taylor's representation and you realize they're not going to give you that big extension because it's a position you can replace at 70% the production for 30% the cost, etc., don't you lose leverage in that discussion when you're still holding auditions or making phone calls for that position four days before your opening game? Well, I guess, I guess but they, but you gotta you you can't put everything on hold at the running back position because your star running back is is out for whatever sitting out hurt whatever you want to say. So you, you've got to do that. They'll do that at all positions. So I, it, it's just it's just a very very untimely situation for Taylor. Every almost everything is working against him. Still got a year to go, and, and he wants top money, which he's not going to get either here. Although I, I, it's funny, I saw a note somebody reported that I believe the person to report, I believe, they said that Miami and Green Bay were willing to pay to make Ty, Taylor one of the highest paid backs in the league. Whatever that, that's probably I don't know, thirteen million. I'm just guessing, but but then if that's the case, why why wouldn't they give up a second round pick for him? A second round pick and more. I think the Colts would have come off of a one if they had gotten, you know, the the, the two plus plus. I don't know. So it, it's it's just such a bad timing situation. It's the imperfect storm of things going wrong. He has clearly outperformed his contract. Clearly, you know, anyone who says, and, and when people say, well, you know, he's just back, and this, it's garbage. It's garbage. He, he, he's an elite player. And but again, there is that 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 notion, proven notion that you can get by with lesser lesser talent, less less expensive talent. Put it that way. And and all of that, you know, go back. You know, Kansas City Super Bowl with a seventh round draft pick. Well, they had Mahomes for crying out loud. Let's not let's not go overboard on that. So I want to see how how this thing transpires. It, something's going to happen. Has to happen. In, in like five weeks when he's when he's able to come off a pup and then he practices or he doesn't I just don't think the Colts are going to willingly let him stay on pup all year which he'll get paid but then here we are again in February or March when the contract calls so I think there'll be some kind of a hard decision made by the team to where they're going to make him they're going to say, no, we think you're healthy. No, I'm not. And then and then you get other parties involved. And that's when a nasty situation really goes over the line because I don't think this team's going to let him stay up all year and just say, oh, yeah, get that ankle right. I don't think that's going to happen. Mike Chappell is our guest. He's with CBS4 and WXIN here in Indianapolis, Fox 59, talking about the Colts. Mike, Chris Ballard – essentially ended his press conference the other day by saying you know about Jonathan Taylor like look making the point again as he's made look we won four games last year you know hammering home that point we, we, we won four games um, give me an area we know that quarterback they made a change we'll take that one off the table for you uh, give me an area where he made his team better from last year in the offseason uh, boy that's one you just kind of threw at me uh, I don't Josh Downs, I guess, I guess, but he's a rookie. We don't know. Free agents, uh, kick, kicker, I, I guess. Here I am scrambling, which means I'm, I don't really believe a lot of. Hopefully, Matt Gay is better. Although the kicker last year was pretty good. So yeah, I, I, I know what you're, I know what you're saying. I know what you're indicating. This is not a strong roster. It just isn't. This is not one of his stronger rosters. They're like an injury away. And a lot of positions from really Bernard Ryman, you know, I think he had a very, very strong training camp. If he goes down, you're hurting because you don't really have a viable left tackle backup. I would argue that the best, the, the position you are best positioned to have an injury is quarterback. 
if Richardson gets hurt, okay, you know, Minshew's got his limitations, but he, he's not he, – he's okay. I was going to say he's not awful. That, that, that's not a compliment. I think they can get by for a while without with Minshew. I don't know if I'm talking, you know, uh, the left tackle, the right tackle, uh, uh, one of the defensive ends, DeForest Buckner, maybe maybe Buck. They, nah, he's he's that good, but they've got depth on the interior line. But no, this this is a roster that that a couple of key injuries and people always get hurt. It's just who and where. This this fragile roster can really start struggling. I hope that's not the case, but it's certainly a possibility. Chap, to kind of build off Jake's question, because we had that conversation, where is the roster better or not? And I'll, I'll preface it this way. We, you never want to see anybody lose their jobs, but that is the nature of all businesses, that at some point it's time where rubber meets the road and a decision has to be made. The prevailing thought, at least in past conversations we've had with you and when Jake and I have discussed it, is that Anthony Richardson brings with it a new lease on life to some extent for Chris Ballard. At what point, though, and it's hard to write this team off week one in a season that we know they're not trying to compete for things, but at what point can you look offseason after offseason and see where the team has had its shortcomings and think to oneself, I trust this gentleman to build around my future franchise quarterback? I don't know. Uh, uh, At what point is that a fair years, question, years, I guess? Two years minimum. I'm thinking three years. But, you know, you're, you're right. It, it's. I think there's a lot of areas Chris has done a really good job. But the problem is, I say he, they haven't been able to fix quarterback. They haven't been able to fix left tackle. And they haven't been able to fix, I'm talking long term, which long term, five or six years. Pass rush, edge pass rush. Well, those are the three money positions. So, yeah, I. I but, but I'm telling you, Jim Mersey trusts him. He does, and it's 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 rare, I think, that a team after whatever it was five or six years with the GM gets in position for the number four pick, and that GM has the opportunity. To, to use the pick. Normally, that's not the case. But I, I there, there's no question the owner trusts Chris Ballard. But it's also very true that that they have to be right on Anthony Richardson. They have to be. If, if not, in in three years, you're doing this all over again. And and then the your roster they've gotten old. You you flipped your roster over. So he has to be right. I think he knows he has to be right. And. It, they they just not revisionist history, but there were there was only like one chance where they could really reload at quarterback after Luck left, and they didn't. Uh, they tried to get by with what they did, and that's no way to try to grow as a franchise by going from this guy to that guy. A lot of us thought Carson Wentz might be a long term answer, well, the, you know, wrong. Uh, so they've got to be right here because if not. This is not going to be a fun franchise to be around for the next, I don't know, four or five years. It won't be. I'm apparently going after people's heads today, so I apologize for that. But the other question I wanted to ask you, I was happy they retained Gus Bradley, but very rarely do you see with new coaching hires every position, especially a key position like defensive coordinator, be retained without serious influence from the head coach. And I know that he has a previous relationship with Gus Bradley, so... He wouldn't have signed off on it if he didn't like him and trust what he brings to the table. But in a season where there's so much concern about how the development of Anthony Richardson is going to go along while also accepting that the wins might be few and far between, is this an evaluation year for Gus Bradley? And if not, how will he be evaluated by how this defense performs? Coaches get evaluated like players. And if this defense is as ineffective as it was over the last half of last year, then then they'll be very much suspect. I, I, I thought they I thought it made sense to retain Gus. I like Gus, but that you know that doesn't weigh into anything. But when you're when you're totally overdoing overhauling the, the offensive staff except for what Reggie, he might be the only one still here. To, to do the same thing on defense, boy, that really puts pressure on the head coach to come in and 
you know, just just blow that up too. That that's a lot. There's decent pieces in place, but you've, you they, they've got to you know it's it's time for Quiddy Pig to be to be a guy. It's time for Dio to be a guy. It's time for you know getting so many guys to to step up and, and not be just six or seven sacks, but 10, 11, 12. But I wasn't surprised Gus was is back. But they, it, it's performance. It's performance based. It all is. So they've got to play at a decent level. There's some guys say, "Well, you know, the rookie quarterback and this that." No, they've got to do their job too, and he's got to do his job with rookie, either rookie or inexperienced corners, and you know, a, a thin safeties, and it, it, it's just not conducive to success. But we'll know early on. Jacksonville's pretty good. Jacksonville's loaded. But, you know, I, it, you know, it's one of these where yeah, you, you've got us before Jacksonville. We expected this, and then they pee on their leg. These guys look pretty good. They got a quarterback, and they got a head coach. That goes so far. And, and then you know, Calvin Ridley and, and Christian Kirk, Travis Etienne. They, they're loaded. They're going to light it up. They're going to put points up. And can can teams keep up with them? Can this team keep up with them? I don't know. And that that's going to be on Gus to limit the damage on Sunday because there will be damage. And, and Mike, I their defensive front four to me, you know, we talked to John Osher earlier in the program, who I know you know that's down with Jaguars.com now, and he was saying last year they were able to pressure quarterbacks. They didn't always close the deal on sacks, but they do have, I think, a young core of some defensive guys in Jacksonville that are pretty nasty, man. Like those guys, you know, it, it – I think you're going to have Richardson could potentially have his hands full in, in, if they're not able to protect for him coming up on Sunday. Would you agree with that? Yeah, this isn't going to be like uh, Jacoby Reset. What was it? Was it 11 sacks? What was it that one year? It's not going to be that. This line will be better. They're going to, they're going to keep Richardson either short throws or you know, quick throws and, and outside the pocket. But yeah, I, I, that's why I say Jacksonville looks real. Because they've got young talent at the key positions, you know, quarterback and and Ridley, and and they got you know young pass rushers. So I like what they've done. And if, if Richardson's out there getting sacked six seven times, it's a long day. Because you're, how how do you the best way to you know slow down a pass rush is a, is a not to say strong, but a reliable run game. Well, we don't know. We just don't know. So it, it's it's Sunday's going to be so interesting. They they've shown us very little offensively the Colts at what they're going to do and how Steichen is going to scheme things up. But at the end of the day, you know, all the RPOs are great, and and we need to check out what the, the the franchise record is for rushing by a quarterback. It's not all that much. This this kid's going to get it. But at the same time, you know, look at Chicago. It's great to have a running quarterback, but you sure better be able to throw the football because that's what the NFL is all about. It's got to be Ricky Turner, Mike, right? It's got to be Ricky Turner running the wishbone. That's a record. Back in, back in the day with Ron Meyer. God love him. <laughs> hey, last question. I'm going to put you really on the spot here. You ready for this one? Ready. In my opinion, there is one definitive answer. So you will be judged if you don't come up with the answer that I have in my mind. On the Jake scale. Okay, That's go ahead. Right. You're on a deserted island. You've got the entire Beatles discography with you and a CD Ooh. player, to use an old term. Guy rolls up, gets off a dinghy. You get to chatting with him. He says, what do you do around here? And you go, well, I listen to the Beatles. And he says, I've, I've never heard of the Beatles. What are the Beatles? And you try to explain it to him. And he goes, well, play me one song that most illustrates who the Beatles are. You can only pick one song. The song you pick is what? A Day in the Life. Bingo! Chap got it right. Have we had this discussion before? You know, I have circular conversations often with myself. That that has to be the correct answer, right? Yeah. I thought you were going to say album. I was going to say Abbey Road. But, yes, it's a single. It's Day in the Life. And and when you're listening to it, you got to crank it up. And, 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 and let that last chord play out till till forever. By the way, you know that the, the song – the beginning of the song, um, when he talks about the, the the guy in the car, right? You, you know that that is it. Guinness is that right? 
it was a, it was um, either Paul or John witnessed a car crash, and really? where where a young person unfortunately was obviously fatally injured, a young man, and it was a guy in a in a Lotus sports car, and he was speeding, and he missed a red light, lost control of the car, and and crashed, and he was the heir apparent to the Guinness Brewery fortune. Wow, if I'm not mistaken. I have no idea why I know that. How old are you, Jake? How old are you? Uh, 51 now. You know, you've got all this dumb information in your head, and it, it works for you on radio. When you're 60, you're sitting there in your recliner. It's still going to be in your head. Then what are you going to do with it? It just takes up space. <laughs> I know, because there's no way I'm doing a radio show in nine years, let alone nine months, Mike. Right? <laughs> I hear you. <laughs> we know that for a fact. Chap, appreciate the conversation as always. Talk to you next week. All right, that's Mike Chappell.